Hello, Tom. How are you? How's Edinburgh this morning? Very well, thank you, Simon. It's um, um, heavy showers and sunshine and then rain and wind and all the seasons in one day, as usual. Good enough for you lot. It's beautiful through here, as always. And we've got our first guest on our Crime Time Inc. podcast, George Barnsley, retired superintendent of Police Scotland. Hello, George. How are you? I'm fine, Simon. Thank you very much. Uh, very good. Weather's very much the same through here. Yep. Nice to see you. And as I said, you're our first guest, maybe our last, depending on how it goes as well. It's almost a year since your book, The Lanarkshire Police Chronicles, came out, um, which I was involved in the birth of, I suppose, because I spotted some of your stories on your, your Facebook page. And I messaged you and said, George, we should try and get these down into a book kind of form. And it went from there. That's right. So that's nearly a year. How are you finding being a, a highly successful author? Quite strange. It's unusual. I never thought. That's what I would be. I never thought I'd be writing books or anything like that. But it's been an interesting experience and quite a pleasurable one to see the book actually selling, which I suppose is one of the big things that you're panicking at the back of your mind. Yeah, and it sold really, really well the first few months because of the work you put in uh, marketing it at that time. Of course, Tom's an author as well. Uh, the three of us have got books out. Tom, you still doing well with uh, Rugston? Yes, it's still selling well. It's come out an audio book, of course, which is a super production. And the American company who bought the podcast and TV rights are just about finished their first phase. So it'll be coming out in a either a six or an eight part podcast in October or November. So that's going to be interesting. I mean, I've written a book before, but it's quite demanding. I mean, you write the book and you finish it and you put it away and think that's it done. Well, of course, it's not because there's an awful lot of work to be done after that, including marketing and selling. And you're always getting phone calls and emails and text messages about some aspect of the book. So there's an aftercare element to it as well. Yeah. I don't know about you two, but I find with mine with the 10%, I got a phone call the other day from a policewoman I worked with 40 years ago. And what I've found astonishing is the ripples that it's caused. I've been in touch with ex-colleagues who are now living in Australia and we're in the book and things like that. And that's been probably the most rewarding part of it, is the lives that it's touched inadvertently. So you the same? Yeah, I think obviously mine is a bit more localised to the subject matter and things, but certainly uh, a lot of people have been getting in touch and a lot of people speaking about things in some of the a couple of the cases we'll talk about later that people were involved in. You know, you get approaches from them and then comments from them. And it was something, again, we'll talk about, it was a bit concerned about, about writing. I suppose when you do true crime sort of stuff to make sure you have to get it accurate and that's one of the fears that somebody that's maybe involved in something is going to come up and say oh that's not what happened but it didn't turn out that way it turned out the opposite way somewhere in the world is an expert who is waiting to criticize and send you a message saying that he actually didn't turn left when he came out the station he turned right <laughs> there's, there's always someone like you that see, I was I was very careful of that, and the strap line on my book, as you probably both know, is the truth, the whole truth, and something like the truth. In the introduction, <laughs> I explained that everybody remembers things differently, so I got myself off the hook right away. <laughs> Simon, I have to tell you that the fact that you were the author, that didn't need to be said. <laughs> Thanks, Tom, on our True Crime podcast <laughs> here. <laughs> George, you alluded there to the stories. The book is made up of true-life stories from the history of the Lanarkshire Police, and it's an absolutely fascinating read, not just for policemen or whatever, but it's, that's why it's been so popular. But the book was dedicated to the lives of George Taylor and Ross Hunt. That's almost a year ago, George, that we were there at Trompelia Golf Club when you launched the book, and it was a very poignant evening. You had the senior police officer there, you had an MP there, you had some people from the charity there, and some of the families to do with the police officers that you dedicated the book to, George Taylor and Ross Hunt. Before we, we go into the ins and outs of that and how the, the campaign has progressed and will progress, can you recap for our audience about the terrible incident, uh, first one being George Taylor at uh, Carstairs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the main drivers for the book where the murders of two police officers in Strathclyde police area at the time, 1976 and 1983. In 1976, Constable George Taylor was murdered following an escape from Carstairs State Hospital, which is in a quiet part of the, the Lanarkshire countryside, which borders on with Lothian and Borders Police. 
The two individuals that had escaped, Thomas McCulloch and Robert Moen, had both been incarcerated in there for violent crimes. You only get placed in Carstairs if you are the most violent or uncontrollable people, and then you'll be placed into Carstairs. Moen in particular, he'd murdered up in Dundee, a school teacher, and he was involved in various other sexual assaults as well, and a number of other things. So he was incarcerated in Carstairs, and McCulloch was involved in a violent incident down in the Barton or Clyde Bank, I think it was, when he produced a firearm and discharged it at a, a member of staff in a, a restaurant in a public house, injuring him quite badly. So he was placed into Carstairs as well. And the both of them built up a relationship over time and hatched a plot to escape over a period of months. Yeah, George, that's very interesting. I think my memory serves me correct. It was an incident in Erskine when he was in a restaurant and the whole trigger, the whole trigger, and this is quite a common theme that I'll speak to Tom about as well, that I've experienced before. Apparently he didn't get enough butter on his roll and that was enough to set him off into this rage and end up discharging a firearm, as you say, and seriously injuring people. 1985, I think, 86, was the Berlini rooftop riots. Uh, I was going to say that I was part of, I was part of the inquiry team after the event. Uh, not the, the rooftop riot when Ralston and all these guys ended up on the roof in the snow, in two or three foot of snow. It was one of the, the biggest snowstorms we'd had. And the aftermath of that, and what we discovered in the aftermath was what had triggered it. Apparently, Ralston, who was the, the trigger at the time, he was the leader of the riot at the time, was all over another guy in the queue at breakfast who took his sausage. The guy in front of him took a sausage that he had his eye on, and he took real exception to this, and the two of them started fighting over the sausage. And that ended up in a week-long prison riot where prison officers were stabbed and there was a whole lot of incidents that went on there. The, the prison was wrecked, basically, for Linny. Tom, have you had experience of that, where the slightest thing can trigger this kind of over-the-top response? I think that grossly disproportionate response, uh, the sort of hair-trigger thing. I mean, I dealt with a, a young man, um, and, he, and he was he was of limited um, uh, intellectual ability. He was a young thief, and he, he was physically very, very big, and he could not verbalise anything. If there was any kind of confrontation, he had to strike out. It was the only method he had of communicating. He ended up killing a man, an older man, and he ended up in Castaires. There was a time when people thought that Carstairs was an easy number, so they tried to swing it that they would be sent to Carstairs. And of course, it was the biggest mistake of their lives because there's no release date in Carstairs. It was an incredibly foolish move, but I always remember this guy, and I always remember saying to some of my colleagues, you know, just be careful how you approach him because he does not know how to defend himself or express himself other than striking out. It was the only method he had of communication, and therefore he was very dangerous. And yet, get him in another circumstance and sit him down and talk to him, and he was actually very reasonable. It was just that hair trigger. The time at Carstairs, I think the uh, regime was pretty relaxed, and they were allowed access to all sorts of areas within the facility. They were also allowed into areas where they could make things, metalwork classes, woodwork classes, and they made knives, axes, various other things and other equipment was going to assist them in this plan to escape from the institution. They were also involved with a theatre group. At the time of their escape, they were preparing for a Christmas play. And they'd been allowed access to uniforms and various other things within the facility. And they were quite close to the members of staff and other inmates. So them and one of the prison nurses, Neil McClellan, and another chap, an inmate, Ian Simpson, were with Mona McCulloch in the facility. And they were getting ready for this play and preparing things. But it was that night, uh, 30th of November 1976, that they decided they were going to leave. And what they'd done was basically when they were on their own with these two others, they attacked them violently with the weapons they'd made and concealed at various places around the office where they were preparing for the play. And they basically hacked the two, Simpson and McClellan, to death. In fact, McCulloch cut Mr. McClellan's ears off as well, took them as a prize, basically. Now, they'd also made ladders, so they went out over the fence, the perimeter fences, using the ladders and then escaped into the countryside. They'd been watching for a period of months as well, the traffic on the, the roads at night, and so they'd timed it all when they were going to do it under cover of darkness, etc. And their plan was to stop a passing motorist, steal their car, and then make off into wherever they were going to go. And that's what they'd done. They went out with uniforms on, prison officer uniforms, white coats, the hats, and various things, and they were on the road, stopped motorist, 
who thought there was an incident obviously happening and he stopped to assist. And they'd only stopped for a matter of uh, seconds when, by pure chance, a police vehicle with George Taylor and his colleague came along the road and saw this vehicle stopped in the middle of the road. They saw the warders, so they decided to stop and see what was going on. Because they thought as well there was an incident taking place from the, the hospital, although there'd been no alarms raised. So George was in the passenger seat. He, when the vehicle stopped, he got out and his colleague parked the vehicle. But when he got out and started to speak to them to find out what was happening, he was immediately attacked with axes and knives and basically hacked to the ground. By the time his colleague got out of the vehicle, this attack was ongoing. And the colleague tried to intervene, but was fought off by the other two. The owner of the car who'd stopped, he made off to try and get help, obviously realising something went wrong. The attack was so intense that uh, George's colleague fled the scene to try and get assistance. And George was left uh, lying in the ground. Now, by the time the colleague got back to the road, the, the vehicle was gone. They'd actually stolen the police vehicle, Mona McCulloch, and headed off. The other car driver, he'd went to the main gates of the institution, tried to alert staff, but they said there's no alarm at all, so there's nothing wrong here, and didn't raise any form of alarm at all. So they were allowed to flee, basically, into the countryside. And then it was a catalogue of things that after George managed to flag down a bus before his colleague could return. So when the colleague returned, George wasn't there, and the police vehicle wasn't there, but George had actually flagged down a passing bus and they drove him to a, a nearby local doctor who tried to tend to him, but he had to get an ambulance because he couldn't deal with the horrific injuries he had. And George was taken to Law Hospital nearby. He died shortly afterwards. And in the meantime, what actually happened, transpired next, was Mona McCullough crashed the police vehicle outside Bigger. A passing van with two men in it, two workmen, stopped thinking the police were needing assistance. When they got out to see what happened, Mona McCulloch attacked them with the axes and knives and left them quite seriously injured at the side of the road, and stole their van. Drove through Bigger, then lost control of the van as they were trying to reverse it in a lane, a country lane, and got it stuck. So they ended up walking over fields, went to a farmhouse, chapped in the door, a farmer answered the door, they forced their way in at knife point and held him and his family at knife point, and then stole his vehicle, but left the family where they were, thankfully. While this is all going on, believe it or not, there's still no alarm from Carstairs. The alarm from Castells only went off when uh, John Gillis, George's colleague, had managed to get assistance and phone calls were made to the establishment. And then when the police arrived, about 45 minutes later, they actually went into the area where the murders had taken place. And that's when the initial discovery was made. And that's when the alarm went off. And by this time, they were away down by Bigger and taking this second car and all the other events were unfolding. So when they stole the family's car, that headed off down the A74, as it was at the time, headed south. A police vehicle from Strathclyde got onto the tail of it, but because radios were so bad, they lost contact with the control room and the car was heading south towards Dumfries and Galloway. So Dumfries and Galloway were made aware and then Dumfries and Galloway traffic cars got onto the tail. So with this massive chase heading towards the border and it was clear they weren't stopping, they were going to keep going. So Cumbria police were informed and lo and behold, they did get over the border and the Cumbria officers also got onto this big car chase, which ended just outside Carlisle when they crashed after the Cumbria traffic vehicles managed to force them up a slipway onto a big roundabout and they crashed the car. But they weren't stopped there. They, when they crashed the car, they bailed out of that and tried to hijack someone else that had stopped at knife point. And at that point, all the police officers converged in this small area and ended up a massive fight and Mona McCulloch were eventually arrested and brought back to Scotland, where subsequently they pled guilty to the murders and all the various events that took place and were incarcerated for life. Probably one of the worst cases that we've known in the Scottish criminal history side of things, especially involving the murder of a police officer, which fortunately we do not have very much of in Scotland, never have really had much of that sort of thing take place in Scotland. So most unusual and really uh, two horrific individuals that were properly dealt with at the time, but uh, unfortunately McCulloch has now been released. He was released about 10 years ago, and he now lives up in Dundee. Deemed to be not a danger to the public for some reason. Moan's still in prison? He's still in prison, yeah. yeah. I don't think he'll ever get out. Before we unpick that and move on to your involvement now and bring it up to date, I'd like to ask Tom, because Tom was working that night in Lothian and Borders Police, and as you said, it spread throughout over many forces. There was lots of people, cops all over would be alerted, 
nationwide probably at the time. Tom, what's your memories of that night on 30th November? I remember I was uh, a young sergeant just back from the, the police college, but I was a firearms officer. In these days, we didn't have um, armed response vehicles as such. We just had a sort of sprinkling of people who were firearms trained across the divisions. I remember getting a call to go into the headquarters, go into FETIS headquarters, and there was four of us, the chief inspector in the ops room who was in charge of the whole force at that time of night. He was an older man, a nice, nice man. Gray was his name. And he gave us a very brief outline. He said, look, there's been police officers attacked, killed down in the Lanarkshire border. He said, we've no idea which way these people are coming. There's two men, they're in a car. We'll get the description to you. And he put each of us with a traffic driver in a traffic car. So there was one firearms officer and we had what they called the Model 10 38 revolvers at that time. No ballistic vests, no protective gear at all, just a Model 10 revolver and a handful of bullets and told to make our way down to the border, down to Lothian and Borders border with Lanarkshire because we had no idea of which direction of travel. What I remember about it is that it was the only time ever where the chief inspector took us aside. He said, listen, boys, he said, you've got guns. Use them if you have to. Don't be afraid to use them and we'll back you. And I've never forgotten that because, you know, I've carried weapons many times in the police and you generally don't get, <laughs> you don't get a briefing like that. It's the only time I can remember that happening. And we all set off from Fetis with blue lights and sirens, these traffic drivers, of course, driving like hell, shaking us all over the place down, down these roads. And I think... I think there was four roads we had to cover, and I can't remember. But anyway, we got outside of town and then got the standby because by that time, of course, the car had been picked up going south. The only other time I remember a similar kind of um, a similar kind of emotion was the the morning of the Dunblane massacre, where a very similar thing happened in that there'd been a terrible incident and we didn't know where the culprit was. We didn't know at that time that the Dunblane culprit was actually dead as well. And so by that time we had armed response units and our armed response units headed out towards the Stirling border, towards the Central Scotland Police border. And I remember the Chief Inspector of the Ops Room giving the same warning to tell the armed officers that, you know, don't hesitate here. This is a very, very dangerous situation and you'll be supported. Tom... George is talking about Carstairs State Hospital there, which I don't know about yourself, but I was quite familiar with it, unfortunately, because I was there on a few inquiries over the years. And uh, I can assure you, not for one second, you see that uh, the lapse that George is talking about, that things had got a bit, a bit loose, I think he termed it. Uh, forgive me, George, but when I was there, I had exactly the opposite experience. It was absolutely frightening going in uh, for me because the place had an atmosphere, it had, it had a tension all about itself. And I was left on my own to walk through the grounds, Tom, to go and find the ward that I was going to. And I was very, very conscious that there was cameras following me every step of the way and that there was nobody about. I've often heard that in Auschwitz in Poland, the, the German concentration camp, there was no wildlife came near it for many, many years afterwards. And that's how I would describe, maybe being a wee bit melodramatic, but to me, on my own, walking through the grounds of Castells, that's how it felt. And I don't know about you, but I find it hard to believe that they could become lapsed with the type of prisoners that, that were incarcerated there. What about yourself? Did you have occasion to go there, to a state hospital? Yes, I did. And like you, I found it a very strange place. And if you think about it, you know, Castells, the state mental hospital, it's a prison trying to be a hospital. So, I mean, I think the dilemma that Castells has always, is that it's a very, very secure prison trying to be a hospital. The people in Carstairs have been detained under the Mental Health Act, either as unfit to plead to some serious crime or have been found to be insane at the time of the crime. And they're detained there at Her Majesty's pleasure. In other words, they're not there for a fixed time. They are there until they are assessed to be ready to be released either completely or into the mainstream prison population. So it's a very, very difficult place where they try their hardest, and my heart goes out because I would not have their job 
for a pension, but they try their hardest to give it a hospital feel and a hospital environment and a recovery environment. But at the same time, everybody is aware that they're dealing with some of the most dangerous people in the country. So there is always this dilemma. I mean, they, they call it the state mental hospital and the staff are called nurses. But on many occasions, of course, they have to be warders and they have to slip between these two very different roles. I found it a very disturbing place. It's the only place I've ever seen a padded cell, a real padded cell. So I can see in a way how the security would move and lapse because they would be trying to rehabilitate people to get them ready for release. That security versus rehabilitation has to be the big problem there. And that, and that must be the rubbing point always. On one of my visits, I was on my own and I had to go to one of the wards within the, the grounds. And as you know, all the wards are buildings. It's almost like an army barracks when you're inside. And I was obviously, my pockets emptied, everything scanned, x-rayed a lot. And then I was allowed to walk up and I was told to stay in the middle of the pathway, the roadway. And I was very conscious of the CCTV cameras following me. I could hear them turning and following me all the way up. And then I had to go through another procedure to get in to interview uh, the psychiatrist that I was there to see on business, not on personal business, on police business, I need to add. I was at Carstairs before the Moaning McCulloch escape and afterwards. And the difference was chalk and cheese. Clearly, the Moan and McCulloch escaped had shaken them to the very roots. Of course, it's like prisons, it's like police stations. You know, the stable door is always crashed shut after the horse is gone. There was a very, very different security regime before and after that escape. But I think still you've got to have a level of understanding of what they are trying to do and the complexity of what they're trying to do. You know, this combination of prison and hospital is a very, very difficult one. So, Tom, that's interesting, the mayhem. That's what I'm getting a sense of here, is the absolute mayhem. Because these two characters only had the very basic plans. In a future Crime Time Inc. podcast, we talk about a prisoner at Peterhead who specialised in escaping from prison but he had no plan. These two, although they'd had time to, to plan their actual escape, it seems, they didn't have a detailed plan about where they were going and how they were going to get there. It kind of ended that let's get a car and head south. That, that seems to have been the extent of it. Would you agree? Obviously, they had planned the actual attack and the assault. They had prepared weapons and they were going to use extreme violence, which they did. But then after that, the phase two of how to make good their escape, then that's a different matter. And in that remote location, as you and I both know it, at that time of year, at that time of night, then the only way to do that would be to either steal a car or more easily hijack a car. And of course, being the personalities they were, the violence issue was not a problem. So hijacking a car would be much, 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 much easier. And at that point, what we've got, the mayhem, is because the alarm's not been raised. Carstairs is unaware that anyone's out. And George Taylor and his colleague, when they come upon this scene, they come across what they think is an innocent scene of a breakdown or such like, and they're lending assistance. So they're totally unaware and unprepared for what's about to ensue. Because these two are wearing overalls or, or white jackets from the hospital, and could easily be mistaken as staff from the hospital. So everybody's guard is down at that point. And the last thing, let's face it, the last thing you expect is to be attacked uh, with serious weapons in the middle of the night like that. Tom, I've been putting on our, uh, on our blog and on our website that we're covering this story because of George's campaign, which we're going to come on to talk about. But something strikes me here that, that there's obviously questions asked. This has happened throughout my career. Uh, about officers and how they act in certain situations, especially extremely violent situations. What do you do when that happens? And I don't know about you, but the simple truth from my perspective is that you never know how you're going to react when things like this happen right in front of you. And I've seen the biggest and bravest guys you could ever, ever dread to meet on a dark night crumble in these circumstances when they catch them by surprise. And I've also seen policewomen of diminutive stature rise to the occasion and run into the, the danger 
and put their life right on the line. You don't know how somebody's going to react until until they're there, do you? No, you don't, and and you can prepare for it. You can train for it. Um, you can do all your defence training with your battens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the reality is that you react. You have to react in a split second, and then live with that decision for the rest of your life. Particularly if one of your colleagues is seriously injured or killed. And like you, I've seen the biggest, strongest people be a bit diffident. And like you, I've seen um, small policewomen particularly, like terriers, really get stuck in in a very dangerous situation like that. But you don't know, and you're a fool if you say you do. Yeah. I had an incident in Barhead once where the guy had a knife and we, the call was coming out. There was cops coming from everywhere. And when I got there, I was in plain clothes, which helped, of course. I was in a suit because I, I managed to get eye contact with him. He, he realised that I wasn't a uniform and and I managed to get some rapport with him from a safe distance. But he had a big blade. And there was a guy who I won't name, but a uniform cop that was there with a lot of service, and he was ex-forces, and he was always bravado. He was always Mr. Macho, and he was very much built. But he had this, He was first at the scene with his colleague, but he had disappeared from the locust by the time I got there. And you don't really notice that at the time when you're dealing with it. But I certainly noticed it after I dealt with it. I managed to get a rapport with the guy, managed to get quite close to him and managed to get him to put the knife down by his side and we overpowered him. So it was a happy ending, uh, obviously, because I'm still here. But when I get back to the office at Barhead, I made a, a beeline for the, the guy I'm talking about who wasn't there. And he was in a back room in Barhead office with his head in his hands. He wasn't crying, but he was obviously upset. And I said to him, I mean, I've seen fights break out in these circumstances when cops have, have run away from things. He was ready for me to come in and say to him, what happened? And all he did, Tom, was stand up and undo his tunic and his shirt. And he opened his shirt and he had a scar like that right down his stomach, right down to his navel where he had been stabbed before. And when he saw the knife and he saw what was happening, he just couldn't he couldn't face that again. So it was a happy ending all round. <laughs> but what we're saying here is that uh, nobody knows. Nobody can, and I, I could never criticise someone uh, for reacting and saving their life like that, uh, knowing that in those circumstances, you just don't know what you're going to do. I got myself into a, an arrest situation, a very, very violent struggle with a guy, and I was trying to call for help uh, on the radio, because in these days, in the early days, you, you patrolled on your own, you didn't have a mate with you all the time. I was trying to call on the radio for assistance, and of course, typically, you know, you know, please repeat your message. <laughs> these action movies where you see people fighting for, you know, 15, 20 minutes, it's absolute nonsense. I mean, I was, a, I was young then, I was in my 20s, I was strong. After 30 seconds, you feel your strength starting to fail you. And, and then the fear comes in that this guy's going to beat you, that you, he's going to get the better of you. See, there's that rule that I always had in my head, and I, I learned it with firearms training as well, that something like 99% of cops that are killed by firearms in the States are killed within six foot. They're six feet away or less. So... The lesson is to stay six foot away. And if you can keep a safe distance and get some rapport, I don't think, I, and I, I remember saying to people many times, we can do this one way or the other. We can either come and talk to me and we'll do this peacefully, or we're going to roll about the street. And sometimes they make a decision they just want to roll about the street, especially in places like Barhead and Govan. They just want to fight and that's the end of it. But not wanting with weapons and wanting to kill you. I don't think. I was involved in a in an armed siege situation once. I suppose it was a little bit the Stockholm Syndrome. As time went by, I actually got an empathy with the guy who had the gun. I was actually more concerned with getting shot by my own firearms team. <laughs> George, before we go back to the George Taylor incident, because we're, we're going to come back to your campaign, which we'll talk about in a minute, but I think it would be obvious to anyone listening to that that George showed immense courage on the night that he lost his life. And we'll come back to that. Now, the event in 1983 was with Ross Hunt. Can you take us through that similarly? Yeah, it was 5th of June 83 in Lark Hall. 
there was another officer murdered, uh, Ross Hunt, a detective sergeant. There'd been a, an attempted murder in the town earlier that evening and two detectives who worked in Larkhall had been covering it and they'd been tracing witnesses and trying to track down the person responsible who was known to them and it was a well-known local family. Now, there was only four officers on in that division that evening. At that time, between six at night and seven in the morning, there was a maximum of four officers covering a, a division from the CID side of things, a detective sergeant and three detective constables. That would change uh, towards midnight when two went away. There was only two left to cover. So Ross Hunt was the senior officer, CID-wise, uh, on duty that evening. Now, he'd worked in Larkhall previously and was well aware of this family and knew how violent and dangerous they were. So he'd contacted his detectives and said he would come out and assist them to try and trace them to get the, the situation dealt with and obviously get this person who was at large already tried to murder someone and get them arrested. So they knew where this family stayed, they knew where they were, so they, they headed towards their house. No guns, nothing, no firearms teams, as Tom said, even then in 1983, firearms teams were still up early stages. So they headed out themselves with their plain clothes to this house in early hours of the morning to try and track down this person that they were looking for. They got to the house, the family were in, but the person they were looking for wasn't. So they decided just to leave and they would go and make some other inquiries and come back later. As they left, a group of people were walking down the street towards them. Now in the dark, again, early hours of the morning, it was quite dark, so they couldn't make out exactly who they were. So they walked towards this group who were approaching from the other vehicles. And as they were walking past them, they recognised one of the group was, in fact, one of the persons they're looking for. So they allowed them to go into the pathway of the house and they followed them in. At that point, made to arrest the person. A fight started with a small group that were there. One of the group ran into the house to obviously alert others inside as to what was happening. And then the whole family came out, and there must have been about uh, seven or eight of them. And a huge fight started in the garden. The family were all coming out with various items of uh, pokers and sticks and clothing poles attacking the police officers. And it was clear at that point that perhaps they were well outnumbered and they didn't have the same amount of weapons as these people had. All they had were, if they even had them with them, were their wooden battens. So Ross, being a senior man, said, right, let's just get back to the cars, we'll go and get assistance and we'll come back and we'll get them. So he allowed his uh, three officers to get out of the garden first and he then followed. But as he was coming out behind them, he tripped and fell. And he fell to the ground and one of the people in the group, the fact the person they were looking for, he'd returned to the house and got kitchen knives and basically came out, straddled Ross on the ground and with the kitchen knives basically stabbed him to death. Huge melee started. Ross's colleagues came back, obviously tried to assist him, tried to recover him from the situation, but it ended up just a total a huge melee and fight. Another officer, he was stabbed and had a collapsed lung. They did manage to get out an emergency call, which meant that uh, assistance was coming from all over the force area and eventually did arrive, managed to quell the, the disturbance and arrest all those involved. But by this time, Ross was in a really bad way. Taken by ambulance again to a law hospital, exactly the same place that George Taylor was taken to. In fact, both murders were in the same division of Strathclyde and uh, Ross died shortly afterwards at the hospital. Tragic situation, Ross was 56 years of age. He was due to retire within the next month and was murdered that night outside that house quite violently. A horrible situation. What struck me there, almost a throwaway line from George, was that P.S. Ross Hunt was only a month or so away from retirement. Tom, he was getting close to his pension. And to get within touching distance like that and then get involved in something like this, it's just uh, so tragic. With getting his pension, he was 56 years of age. How does the pension system work within, within the police? How it worked at that time, and of course it's all changed, but how it worked at that time was that constables, it depended on your rank, constables and sergeants had to retire at the age of 55. Inspectors and above could go on to 60, the age of 60. Quite often what happened was people who had joined the service a bit late, i.e. joined when they weren't 19 or 20, would reach the age of 55, but not having completed their 30 years service. And of course, 30 years service is the time when you can access your full pension. At that time, 30 years service was two thirds pension, or your final salary pension, whereas 25 years was only half. There was a big difference. So people tried to get to as close to their 30 years as they could. And quite often what you found was that a sergeant, a constable who reached the age of 55, they were still fit and still up for the job, 
they'd apply for an extension, and they would get an extension of a year, which could then be carried on for another year until hopefully they reached their pensionable age and they could leave. So that's what happened. Now, I met Ross Hunt, and he was very much the father figure of the station. And, you know, in, in some of these small stations and CID units, you get people who take on that role. And as we know, Simon, the, the whole of the police service rests on the shoulders of the sergeants. It's the sergeants who are there morning, noon, at night. It's the sergeants who keep people right. It's the sergeants who encourage and train young officers. If you've got good sergeants, you've got a good station. And if you don't have good sergeants, then you've got problems. It doesn't matter about the chief inspector and the superintendent so much. You need strength at the sergeants. Frankly, this is where I think the Metropolitan Police have gone wrong in recent times, is that they do not have the strength in the sergeants to mediate and keep control of behaviour. Ross Hunt was a, a classic father figure sergeant, so he would not ask any of his men to do anything he wouldn't do himself. He was very much a front leader. He would show example, and the night he was killed was a classic example. He shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't actually have been there. It was not a matter for the CID, but he knew something was kicking off with a, an infamous family, an infamous family, and he thought, I'll better go down there and make sure this is done properly. And so there he was in his last months of service after a very distinguished service, taking this responsibility on himself and walking into the most hellish violence, which again was totally disproportionate, utterly and completely disproportionate. But of course, you've got a family who are you know, prone to violence, drink had been taken, tempers were raised, and so the flashpoint, and Ross, poor Ross, walked right into that and, of course, suffered the fatal consequences. So again, similarly, we've got a police officer in the line of duty putting his life on the line, never suspecting that he wouldn't go home that night. And, and how was that treated at the time, George? How was that dealt with by the authorities and by Strathclyde Police? Well, not very well, to be perfectly honest with you. And so having spoken to the families now of both George Taylor and Ross Hunt, the same theme emerges that the support mechanisms that were in place are not what would be there now. You know, things were more a kind of, well, they were doing their job type of response. So these things happen, basically. Anything that was done was basically done by colleagues. You know, there were plaques were arranged for the memory of both officers, but that was by collections made by their colleagues. There were events held, shows and other sporting events to try and raise money for charities in the names of both officers. But these, again, were all done by colleagues, not by the force. Now, something, as both of you all know as police officers, uh, that is available to chief constables are to give out commendations for bravery to police officers for various acts that they may do, arresting people or saving people's lives or doing other things out with the normal course of duty. Neither of these officers even received the chief constable's commendation, which was really weird. In fact, we can't find any trace of of very much being done to actually support them at all from the force, as it were, and certainly speaking to the families, they felt they were left out in a bit of a limb following the events and weren't properly supported. In fact, the Taylor family had to vacate the police house fairly quickly after the incident took place. They had to be out within a month. And that's the way things were then, because the house had to be reallocated. They had to leave. Life moves on. George, I don't think I've ever really asked you how you got involved in this, how you ended up being the main man for the campaign to have these officers recognised? Well, for a number of years I've been doing research into the history of policing in Lanarkshire, and these were two of the main cases, you know, really high profile, two police officers murdered. So as I say, it's unusual in the United Kingdom for police officers to be murdered on duty, but two to be murdered within the space of seven years in the same division and more or less the same locality was highly unusual. So I was Looking into the background of them, and the first question I was asking myself was, wonder what they got in relation to their bravery. What were they awarded? What were they given by either the force or the country? What I'd done was went through the Scottish Police Memorial Trust first. I didn't want to go cold calling anyone because you didn't know what reaction you were going to get. So I knew through the Scottish Police Memorial Trust, which is set up in relation to remembering police officers that have died on duty. 
not been murdered on duty, just died on duty. And we have the, the police memorial wall at Tully Allen that remembers them every year at a service there. So I contacted the Memorial Trust first to ascertain, you know, are the families approachable? Would they speak to me? And they facilitated that first contact. And that's when I found out from them that it was nothing, not a thing. Because I checked everywhere. I'd done the usual, the London Gazette. You'd looked in the newspapers and I'm expecting at some point to find something. But there was absolutely nothing. Speak by its absence. Tom, we're going to be talking about uh, mental health and support for police officers and how the stresses and strains of the job have affected colleagues over the years that we're perfectly aware of. That's a separate podcast that we're going to be doing. But I'm just, it's a wee chance for us to have a wee window into the, the late 80s, or sorry, early 80s, late 70s. What was Lothian and Borders doing in that regard at that time? Or was it much the same? Very much the same. And it's funny when George is mentioning that, it seems absolutely incredible when you think about it now. At the time, it was just passed off as being, as being normal. But I mean, we didn't have a we didn't have a force welfare officer until well into the eighties of any shape or description at all, and certainly we had no facilities, and we didn't think about anything to do with post traumatic stress or anything like that at all. It seems absolutely remarkable that these two officers were not recognised in any way whatsoever, even allowing for the passage of time. It still seems remarkable. Who was the chief constable at the time? Pat Hamill. Yeah, it's Patrick Hamill uh, for both both cases. Yeah, and did he acknowledge these officers? Speak to families and at all that you know of, George? I would have expected there would be some form of contact, but it wasn't to the extent that you would get now. It was kind of more a lip service type thing, and it was mostly put back to the, the local division to deal with, and the local divisional commander to deal with. There was the token; they did turn up at the funerals. The senior officers, yes, turned up there. They did meet with the family, but it was a very much a token gesture. On their behalf. Maybe you two will recognise this, because whenever I think about it, I think I must be mistaken. But we had a road accident. It was the armed response vehicle in Glasgow, Strathclyde, on the M8. And we'll talk about the actual story another time, some of the details. But there was a police officer killed in the road accident. And it was quite horrific the way it involved the, the vehicle went fire, etc. So like you were saying there, George, becomes a convoy of police vehicles. It was like that. It was late at night, maybe the early hours. So cars from every division were on the scene. And afterwards, when we realised the police officer had lost his life and all the cops that had been involved came back, I was at Orkney Street at Govan at the time. I remember the duty inspector saying to me, Simon, have you got a bottle upstairs? And I said, yeah, of course. Every DO had a bottle in his desk in those days. And he said, take some of these lads up. I'll send them up to you and give them a dram and I'll send them home. So they wouldn't all get sent home, but some of them get sent home that were maybe younger or hadn't seen anything like that, and they went home with a dram. And that's the only that's the only welfare uh, response I can remember. That would be the early eighties. Does that seem true? Yeah, I mean, I would say certainly so. And I know certainly Ross Hunt won that there was you know, that scenario where a bottle was open to obviously commiserate what had taken place and give people that bit of support and, you know, to take the pressure off from well into the 90s, that was really the same way as well. I met Ross Hunt, I, I knew Ross Hunt because I was in the CID in the Serious Crime Squad here in the, the early 80s and we did a lot of cross-border work. I met him several times professionally, so I knew Ross Hunt. I remember to the ripples of that coming across the force area and us all being absolutely taken aback. In 1989, I was the divisional commander out at West Lothian and we lost two of our officers, two traffic officers in a car crash. It must have just been over that transitionary period because by that time, there were a whole lot of systems we put in place and there was force welfare officers. In that decade of the 80s, everything obviously changed. There was still the big hurdle to get over that we'll talk later about this because we're going to be doing a podcast about it. The image, the police officer not wanting to go for help as well. You know, it's been seen as a kind of weakness to go and get counselling or whatever. Because when that did get introduced, and I only became aware of it in the 90s, I know that a lot of cops wouldn't have been seen there. You know what I mean? Going into headquarters for that purpose. That's another issue entirely. I think there was a legacy of the war servicemen. Certainly when I joined, there were some pretty tough characters around who had been exposed to tremendous hardships in their early lives, a lot of them during the war in the armed services. And they just dealt with things in a different way. I'm not saying it was any better. It wasn't because, as you just highlighted, heavy drinking was very, very common. Very common. 
as a kind of a debrief mechanism. That was a safety valve, wasn't it? Yeah, and of course, you just looked at the life expectancy of these men. Not many of them made it past their mid-60s, mainly because of that. And smoking, of course, was almost universal, and heavy drinking, which was all just part of that ex-war service culture. And living on adrenaline. There's a hypeness about some of these guys that the three of us well remember. George Ross Hunt was obviously brutally murdered by a mob as it transpired outside that house. What was the aftermath of that? What was the outcome of all that, George? They pled not guilty, and it went to trial, went to the full trial. And the jury unanimously found the three guilty of the murders, so they were sentenced to, to jail time. But things had changed in the period of uh, sentencing and all the rest of it as well at that point. So they all were released, they're all out and about. There's only only one left, and that was a female, that was the sister of the, the, the person that actually committed, who was hands-on with the murder. Uh, the father, who was also charged, he died natural causes. And the son, the boy who did commit the actual murder, he died uh, drug overdose. Actually, after his release, he just went to drinking alcohol, uh, sorry, drinking drugs, and he died of a, a drugs overdose not long after his release. So, George, you became aware of it through your research and through your work with the history of Lanarkshire Police and got in touch with the families, went through the process and discovered, surprisingly, and that, that's for the police service itself in Scotland. The Scottish government wasn't an issue at that time, but it is now. And the UK government, there had been no recognition for these officers. So what did you do and what's been the progress since then of you working with the families to try and get some? Because I think everybody agrees there should be. Seems a no-brainer. That's my thought process, that if something's recognised as being wrong, then efforts should be made to correct it. And that's what I set out to do and spoke to the families to make sure they were happy with me doing that because the last thing you want to do you know, is upset them or bring back memories. But they're both families are still very, very much... Well, they live with it every day. You know, I mean, George Taylor's wife is still alive. The kids are all still there and they've now got their families. So they live through this all the time. Similarly with the Hunt family. Mrs Hunt died, unfortunately, a few years ago. But the boys are all there and they live it all the time. And when you meet with them, you see the emotion is still there. It's still raw. But there's not been this recognition. And they're not looking for anything dramatic. You know, they're just looking for that simple recognition that their father lost their life serving their communities. That's what they're looking for. But what I decided to do was find out, well, why can someone answer why this wasn't the case? So obviously you speak to the police to find out, was anything put forward? Was there anything made? And in the early stages, the answer to that was quite simple. No, there was nothing from neither case. So I also wrote down to uh, the government, the Honours Committee down in London, because that's where all the national honours come from. They don't get done locally. They're all via the awards committee, which is part of the cabinet office. So your usual polite reply saying, yes, we understand these murders took place horrible. Your thoughts are with the families and all this sort of thing. However, and this is the first time I heard this particular thing talked about, because of a five-year rule, we will not reconsider any cases that took place over five years ago. And that is the government stance, blah, blah, blah. So that was fine. I didn't know anything about the five-year rule, nor could I find anything about it anywhere. It's a very difficult thing to actually lay your hands on as to what this actually is. So, But that's developed over time. So I then went to MPs, MSPs, and I've got Graeme Simpson, the MSP for Central Scotland on board, and also Wendy Chamberlain, National MP from Fife on board. Uh, Graeme was first, and he got a debate in the, the Scottish Parliament. He got cross-party agreement to have the debate regarding bravery awards, and we attended along with one of the families at this debate, and the cross-party support was there fully, without a doubt. And all of the MSPs totally agree this was wrong, it should be corrected. And at the time, Keith Brown, who was Justice Cabinet Secretary, he wrote down to the UK government to say the Scottish government would support a review of both cases, which was great. Wendy Chamberlain then came on board, and in January this year, she got a debate at Westminster. Again, full cross-party support. We listened to the debate live. Uh, she put the, the cases across perfectly. And again, everyone agrees. MPs, this is wrong and it should be corrected. Indeed, Johnny Mercer, MP, the uh, Veterans Secretary, he answered on behalf of the government to say it was wrong and he would take the both cases away and prioritise them as a government priority and get the families' answers this year. So we thought, oh, this is looking really good. And I should say, in the meantime, another unfortunate circumstance happened. A senior police officer had died who happened to be the divisional commander, the chief superintendent, who was in charge of Q Division of Strathclyde Police when both these cases took place, both in 76 and 83. 
he died a couple of years ago and his daughter was clearing out the house and she knew about our historical society and she had a few items that she wanted to donate, uniforms and various other things. So I went over to her house, picked these up and her husband came through with a big black bin liner and it was all paperwork. So he said, oh, we're just going to put this in the bin. And I thought, oh no, you can't put paperwork in the bin. We don't know what's there. So I'll take it, look through it. If there's any sensitive, I'll send it to the local police and they can then destroy it appropriately. So I went home, went through it to see what was there, and I just about fell off my seat. I was halfway through it, and I found all these documents, and they all related to George Taylor and his murder. And it was a what we called at the time a subject report, a report based on the circumstances. And he'd written out who full circumstances from A to Z. And at the very end, he recommended George for a posthumous bravery award to the chief constable. He recommended that it should be pursued. He also, believe it or not, wrote to the chief constable saying that other police officers should be given other recognitions and all the members of the public were involved in this hands-on with this pair should also be recognised. And at the time there was a thing called the Strathclyde Day Award, which is a regional council award given for acts of bravery. And he mentioned that saying they should also be considered for this award. And he wrote separate letters to each and every individual involved in this. And he also mentioned the police officers at Cumbria that had been involved in the arrests. Hot in the heels of them pleading guilty and getting sentenced, he put this report in. I went to Sir Patrick Hamill, or Patrick Hamill at the time, who endorsed it, said he had totally agreed, and wrote to the Scottish Secretary at the time, Bruce Milan, to endorse this national award and the other bravery awards. Again, set out the case quite strongly for it. And from there, we don't know what's happened to that report. So we know the Chief Superintendent has made a report. We know the Chief Constable's endorsed it and sent it to that political level to the Scottish Secretary. And we've asked, we have sent FOI requests, we've spoken to people in government and asked them, you know, where is this? Nobody can find it. So that leads me on to the Johnny Mercer thing. There has been letters back and forward to cabinet committees at various times, but they come back with exactly the same answer. You know, yeah, terrible, tragic, where thoughts are with the families, but because of this five-year rule, then they won't allow it. So I've asked, what is the five-year rule? And I asked it via Freedom of Information request. And basically what it is, it dates back to the end of the Second World War, when people were making applications for gallantry in various actions in the war, quite rightly so. But because of the, the number and the scale of these, they decided in 1950 that nothing would be accepted after 1945. That was a cut-off date. So the five-year rule comes in. But this has never been what they call codified. It's never been placed in legislation or as a, a proper policy. It's all been by word of mouth and agreement. And this is what they've agreed to from then to now. You could argue that because the super at that time put that report in, then it was instigated within the five years without any problem. Definitely. So that's what they wrote back to me, say it's not codified. They gave me, pointed to various reviews have taken place over the years, and one in 2012 by a former senior military person that reviewed not bravery awards or gallantry awards, but just the system for military awards. And he actually mentions in this report, they referred me to this report, and what he actually mentioned is that his report would take nothing to do with gallantry awards. He didn't see that as being within his remit. The only reference to it is that I will not be referring to gallantry awards in my report. But they keep referring to this report. So anyway, what happened as a result of the Westminster's uh, debate was that Johnny Mercer, the MP, had agreed to meet with the Taylor family. Unfortunately, they were unable to do so because of various logistical things. So I agreed I would meet him via Zoom. So we had a Zoom meeting where he came on and he laid out his side of things. Basically, what he was telling me was that because he had went to the Cabinet Office and he could find no trace of either officer, uh, George Taylor specifically, having been recommended for any form of posthumous bravery award, then there's nothing else he could do because of the five-year rule. Now, you mentioned in this conversation, the five-year rule, it was in legislation, so therefore there's nothing he could do, his hands were tied. Um, he also mentioned things about the George Medal and various other high-level awards and, and things. So he then asked me what was my thoughts on his response, and I said, well, in January I was really quite high when you said you were going to get this sorted in a year. I said, but now I'm totally deflated because you're basically telling me there's nothing you can do, and that's what he said, now there's nothing I can do. They said, because they've never received this report or a recommendation for consideration of the award. And I said, well, okay. So he said, is there anything you want to ask? I said, well, I want to raise a couple of points. First one being the five-year rule. You mentioned it's legislation. I said, it's not. And he's that startled rabbit kind of look. What do you mean it's not? It is. It's in legislation. And his secretary or whoever she was was at the side flicking through papers. And he said, what do you mean it's not in legislation? I said, well, I've got a freedom of information back from the cabinet office that tell me it's never been codified. So it's not. I said, it's word of mouth. I said, in fact, you can't even tell me exactly who are the people that came up with this. I said, so it's not in legislation. 
Secondly, George Medal, etc. I said, nobody's ever asked for a George Medal. They've only asked for a recognition. I said, and that's down to the awards committee if they want to recommend one. I said, so where the George Medals come from, I don't know. I said, but in January, you mentioned we're going to get it sorted, see it as a priority. I said, but it appears to be, because there's no paper that you can find, that's it. And he was aware of the 1977 report from this chief superintendent because I'd sent him all the paperwork. Could you put it all? So that's basically where we are. We're just at a standstill now. We should maybe say, and maybe I've got it wrong, but we're not now just looking at, uh, at George and Ross, but we're looking at for the emergency services as a whole. Yeah, part of the campaign that we've got ongoing, um, an ongoing campaign with other people down south that have lost loved ones in the police and also other emergency services in the Federation, Police Federation, etc., is to look for recognition for anyone in emergency services who lose their lives in the line of duty. The military already have it, and it's called the Elizabeth Cross. And anyone who loses their life in a war zone is entitled to that. That goes back to the Second World War. But it's only a recent thing. That only came in probably about 15 years ago, the Elizabeth Cross. So looking for something similar for emergency services. We did actually ask if it could be extended to emergency services, and we were told no, that it would have to be a new award. So they are actively considering that. During my conversation with Mr Mercer, uh, I asked about that, and he said, yes, yes, that seems to be more likely that this will be successful, but early indications are it won't be retrospective. So you've got to wait until somebody gets uh, killed or dies. It's unbelievable, Simon. When you speak to people about it and you go through it, I mean, you can spend hours talking about this. And when you tell them about it, they just, their mouths kind of drop open giving it, but why? I said, well, that's what we're asking. Why? I mean, there is a, a thing in this policy that does tell you you know, that one of the things that would allow them to review it is if it wasn't properly considered at the time. It was never considered. It's never even been there. So let's let's fix this. And the big issue I've got, and I did say this to Mr. Mercer as well, I said, well, if had terrorists pardoned, you know, for committing atrocities, well, if had minors had their convictions caused because they feel the convictions weren't right at the time, we've had certain other groups in society that have had convictions caused because of, and these are all way going back over years and years and years, so why can't we look at this and just say, well, it's not right, we should review it and look at it. What astounds me is we've got all the MPs and MSPs all behind this, 100%, and it's the civil servants they are the ones that continually knock it in the head. I'll let Tom speak to you because he's anxious to bring this up to speed. Tom, you want to know how we, where we go from here, really? Yeah, very interesting, George, and um, congratulations on your on your fortitude for keeping going on this. And I think you're absolutely right. Exceptions can be made if there's enough impetus for it. And I think we've all come across this kind of civil service intransigence where it just gets lost in the in the admin sort of bog. Everything's a good idea, but it just sort of disappears. And you get the impression that it's sitting on the desk of some probably middle-ranking civil servant who is just playing it long, who is just, you know, Put, put it in, in the too difficult to do tray. I mean, in terms of the Elizabeth Cross, I cannot see why that cannot be simply by an executive order or without primary legislation, why that cannot be extended to the emergency services. It seems to me eminently sensible. And we've asked that question. Um, we've been told, no, it won't be extended. It would have to be a new award. Why, I don't know. But that's, that's the response you get back. There's no, it would have to be a new award. And they have said that the new award, yes, the likelihood is you will get this, but not being retrospective is absolutely crazy. There's a whole point to it, you know, is that you're now recognising people that perhaps were overlooked, you know, over the years, plus moving forward, people that are, unfortunately, and we don't want it to happen, but it's a matter of fact in life that it will happen, that they will be recognised for their sacrifice as we move forward. So it's a twofold thing, you know, it's to make sure those that have been overlooked get recognised. And moving forward, we've sorted that now. This is not going to happen again. What's your next move, George? It's went quiet, obviously, because there's a recess at, uh, at Parliament. So I've written to the House of Lords, Any anyone that had a police background in the House of Lords, I've written to them all individually, highlighting the, the campaign and asking for their support. Ian Blair's the only one that's got back so far. He said he would support it if it moves forward, so that's fine. We've got another couple of MPs that have been testing the waters and they wrote again to the awards committee and another group that look at various other things about reviews have said that they won't do a review of the system at the moment because it's too close to a general election. They can't tell me when a general election is. And another MP that wrote to the cabinet office that got basically exactly the same letter because he wrote back to me, say, or his, his secretary wrote back to say, hopefully this letter will clarify what they've said. So I opened the letter and I read the letter and I could more or less get the one that I've received put them together and put them on top of each other and it's exactly the same letter. 
and the five-year rule, believe it or not, comes in. And the review of this general comes in again. Um, so that's fine, but we'll not go away. We'll just keep going. We we'll just need to raise the ante a bit. What I'm struggling to get is actually get somebody in the media that's... And Norman Sylvester on the Sunday Mail has been very good with us. And there's been another couple of tentative things put in the Herald and various other things. But see, trying to get anyone, like so from a news broadcasting organisation or something. It's the sad truth that we maybe need a John Lumley or something. Yeah, it'd be good to get a celebrity in there, but it's trying to identify the right one. And hopefully you could get one that's got a connection to the police as well. That'd be even better that has a, you know, that understanding of what this is all about. We're in for the long haul, as Tom said, not going to give up, you know, just because they keep telling you no. And as I say, part of this, the five-year rule thing is if it wasn't properly considered at the time, well, to me, that's... There you are. Plus, having uncovered this paperwork, surely you've got to then turn around and say, well, wait a minute here. You know, there is paperwork. Okay, perhaps you can't find any trace of it. One thoughts are, because things were so bad at Kirsty's at the time, and there was a public inquiry, but the public inquiry did criticise the regime and the government quite a bit. I think there's a bit of embarrassment there, and there was probably at the time, and that's why it's not moved forward. I was aware of a lot of the circumstances, but, you know, the fact that they had the opportunity to make weapons within the state mental hospital is incredible. It's always been a difficult one at Carstairs because it is a state mental hospital. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to rehabilitate and treat their patients, and they call them patients, as if they're suffering from some illness. This balance between trying to do that and recognise that they're some of the most dangerous and violent people, well, they are the most dangerous and violent people, it's always been a difficult balance to strike. But I think you could be right, George. I think it's they didn't want political embarrassment at that time. Tell me, have the Police Federation played a role in this? What are they doing? I was actually surprised because I wrote to them uh, to highlight what we were trying to do. And yeah, they support you. In fact, believe it or not, the first response I got back was, well, we didn't really see what this has got to do with the Federation. And I says, well, they were your members, you know, so you should be fighting tooth and nail. And should have been at a time, but there's nothing at a time either. So they are on board, they are supporting it, but they haven't done anything that I would say is in any way constructive. I've had conversations with someone that does their media recently and they're going to try and push them a wee bit more on that. Same with the Police Superintendents Association. I've spoken to them. The Police Federation of England and Wales are quite vocal on it and are quite upfront about it. They've got a bit of a campaign going as well, so we're joining in with them too. More more of them, actually, unfortunately, than our own federation. So all these organisations are on board, but they don't, they're trying to get them to actually do something. Certainly the, the people that lead the Federation in, in England and Wales, I mean, they will have a direct access to the Home Secretary. And it strikes me that it's the Home Secretary's kind of heft that you need to break this deadlock. Somebody of that seniority to actually say, look, you know, I've heard all the stuff about the five-day rule, but I want this done and I want it done now. Thank you very much. On you go. George, it's an incredible story for us, as you know. But thanks for coming along and sharing it with us because there'll be lots of people out there because it's so long ago now as well. I think it's important that we keep it uh, in a spotlight of sorts. Can I just say one thing, Simon, to thank someone that's actually just left the police service last week, uh, Serene Livingston. We raised this with the Chief Constable as well and he was, or has been, and is really sympathetic to the whole campaign, but he's obviously limited to what he could have done. But what he did do for both families was awarded them a posthumous Chief Constable's Bravery Award and apologised obviously on behalf of the legacy forces for not having done this earlier. He had both families, believe it or not, on the anniversaries of both murders at the Scottish Police College where he presented the certificates to the families, gave them a lunch and sat with them and talked to them one-to-one on a personal basis, which was very emotional. With Mr Livingston as well, it was very emotional as were the family. So it's a big thank you to him for recognising this. That's reassuring, George, to a degree, because when it comes to governments and Westminster and whatnot and civil servants, we're all kind of cynical in that regard that we expect them to drag their heels and behave the way they do. But we should at least look after our own. Just last week, I was um, very pleased to be invited out to Syrian's last farewell lunch. And the last thing he did, the last thing he did before he left was to visit the memorial and to pay his respects. The very last thing he did. Yep, that was nice. Nice touch. Really nice. Superb, George. Thanks for doing that for for kind timing. We obviously want you back. We'll get that whole book of true stories to talk about as well, all well researched and some of them fascinating, horrifying, funny, the whole spectrum. 
So you promised to come back someday and have a chat with us. Yes. It's about your campaign, your ongoing campaign. Thanks, George. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for the invite. Really appreciate it. Nice to see you, George. Thanks, Tom. You too. Next time on Crime Time Inc. I went to a drowning of a very young girl in a pond in Edinburgh. I would be about 20. I can still see this and I can see the anguish of these parents and this, this terrible feeling of grief and guilt all combined. And I have never forgotten that. To this day, I get anxious when I see children near water. When my son and daughter-in-law came and said, you know, fantastic news, they were, they were going to have a baby and we were going to be grandparents for the first time. It's absolutely wonderful news. Literally the first thing I did was order up a JCB to fill in the pond in my garden. I could not rest until I had filled in that pond.